latest edition of the show before the show podcast. I am Sam Dykstra. This is not Tyler Mon doing a Sam Dykstra impression. Uh, Tyler, for those of you who don't follow him on Twitter or other social networks, uh, is off in Europe right now. He did Home Run Derby X last week in London. He hosted that event uh, between technically the Cubs and Cardinals. There were a lot of celebrities and former major leaguers participating in that event in London's Trafalgar Square. Uh, very cool to see Tyler participate in that. And now he's taking uh, an extended trip through Europe. Uh, so when he comes back, hopefully next week, I fully anticipate him having some sort of French accent. Uh, so tune in next week to see how that works. But for this week, it's me speaking, as always, to our own Benjamin Hill. Ben, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, I guess that's all relative. As we were talking off air, I've been a little under the weather this week, and it's been a little stressful. And the here in the heart of the season, you know, not feeling my best and feeling like I have so much work to do. But um, the only room available here to record the podcast in the office uh, was our wellness room. And so if I'm going to get well, it's going to be in a wellness room. So I'm, I'm feeling good about the future. Yeah, I feel like we need to lock you in there for like 24 hours and you'll just be coming out of the best version of Ben Hill that we've ever right. seen on milk.com. I mean, this wellness room has everything you need to get well, a chair, and a mini fridge, a mini refrigerator. I mean, what else? What else? Could... <laughs> and and no windows, critically. I mean, that's yeah, and no windows. That's, yeah, that's definitely good for uh, for wellness. Yeah. Um, well, Ben, you know, we're getting you at an interesting time. I, you know, I know it hasn't been a good week from a health perspective, but before that happened, uh, over the weekend, you had a pretty monumental occasion in in your personal life. You got to take your son Harry to his first minor league baseball game, uh, going to see the Brooklyn Cyclones down the street from you in Coney Island. Long, not very long street, I should say. It's not like it's right around the corner, but still, Harry Hill's first game. I was really excited to see you tweet about that. Uh, what was it like taking your son to a game for the first time? It was an interesting experience. Um, you know, on Father's Day, June 18th, I was on a road trip. Um, I was in Pensacola. And so the following Sunday, you know, in my household, it was uh, Father's Day observed. Um, so kind of thinking of things to do. And of course, a lot of my ideas were, uh, you know, all due respect, but not spending time with my family. <laughs> you know, like, hey, I can uh, go do something I want to do. But I was like, oh, man, what are you going to do? Just go to a bar and play pinball? Cool. So um, I was like, no, nah, the Cyclones are home. It's time for Harry to go to a game. I mean, given who I am and my job, as soon as Harry was born, he's two years old now, people are like, oh, how many games have you taken him to? And, you know, as a baby and a one-year-old, I just kind of felt like at that point, I'm just taking him to a game for me because he's not really going to be able to contextualize it or know what it is. Um, but now he's two and he knows baseball. Um, I've been getting him baseball shirts on the road, you know, because I don't need more stuff, but I've been, you know, getting him like t-shirts and he loves his baseball t-shirts and um, you know, he has a little mini bat and ball in the, in the house and he likes to kind of play around with that. He gets mad at me though, because anytime I pick up my phone to show him pictures of us, if anything baseball related comes up on my phone, he says, no baseball, no baseball. And, um, you know, so he doesn't really like the game itself so much, but I think he likes the aesthetic and the the logos. And, um, Anyway, it was time to to see how we do. And, you know, the Cyclones are certainly uh, my local team, your local team as well, Sam. Um, I live right off the Q train, so I can get to Coney Island quicker than I can get to our office, really. So it's we're like, let's let's take him to the game. It was a two o'clock game. And uh, this is attending a game with a toddler. Um, you know, we gave him an early nap so he wouldn't be totally exhausted. Wake him up. We're trying to get him dressed. And um he has this hatred of shorts right now, which I don't know where it came from, but he hates wearing shorts. So we're trying to get him dressed and put shorts on him or tried to put shorts on him. And he's just screaming about not wearing shorts. All right, man, you can wear pants. Then he sees I'm wearing shorts and then has an equivalent meltdown over the fact that dad is wearing shorts. And I'm like, okay, man, fine. I take off my pants, put on shorts. I'm like, I mean, take off my shorts, put on pants. I'm like, look, dad's got pants. You got pants. Let's go. Then we realized the bag that Jill had um, you know, with Harry's supplies in it, you know, it was a backpack and that's not technically allowed in the stadium. So then we had to repack the bag. By the time we get out of the house and get to the Q train, we just missed the train and it's on a weekend and we wait 16 minutes for the next one. At this point, it's like almost game time 
by the time the train comes and I'm like, look, I know with a two year old, you're going to miss some of the game, but we're going to get there like half an hour late. And these games are shorter now. And is this even worth it? And I'm like all stressed out. So by the time we do get there and get into the ballpark, it's like the top of the fourth inning. Um, we sit down and, you know, 10 seconds into it, he's like, no baseball, no baseball. But of course, what do they have at baseball games? Ice cream. So um, got him ice cream, got him French fries, went to the team store, wandered around the concourse, watched the end of the game uh, on the concourse. But it was really a blur. And the game ended after two hours and seven minutes with the Cyclones uh, beating the Hudson Valley Renegades on a walk-off wild pitch. And I was actually like, you know, that was fine. Getting there in the fourth inning, and even if the game was two hours and seven minutes, that was like enough time. It was all good. And um, so you you just have to, and I don't mean this in any sort of derogatory way, but you you just have to really, really lower your expectations, not think about this experience of like what you want from it. But I think it was good because now Harry at least has the context for what a baseball game is. And even if that for him right now is a place where you can get ice cream, and a place he, he didn't get to see the mascot. We didn't see Sandy the seagull, but and there's a lot to build on. Um, you know, seeing the mascot, uh, doing a post game run the bases. Um, hey, down the line, getting him in uh, between inning contest. You know, there's a lot to to build on. But right now he's so young that it can at least be like Harry. Let's go to the baseball game. Ice cream, ice cream. And that's kind of where we are right now. But um, just because he's my son, it doesn't mean he wanted to sit in a seat and like pay attention to the game and learn about the intricacies. He's two years old. He does not have time for that. Yeah, it's not fully genetic, uh, at least quite yet. Maybe those genes will kick in by the time it's four or five. But you make a good point about kind of stadium design. Because Cyclones, their stadium isn't like a 360 degree concourse, but it's an open concourse. You can see the game pretty much wherever you are in the stadium. And I feel like that's really advantageous for young kids and especially parents with young kids who want to still be watching the game, but always have to be kind of on the move. Right. And, and, you know, I've I've, obviously we've all known this about stadium design for a long time and I've written about it in in many ways um, and really been aware of uh, why that is, but it is funny now uh, as a father myself beginning to bring my son to games is really knowing that and now having a practical usage for it because me as a fan, I don't need a 360 degree concourse. I don't need those bells and whistles. You know, I'm a baseball fan and can just sit in a seat and watch a game, but that's why we chose the Cyclones, not just as proximity, but knowing like it's very kid friendly, you know, there'll be plenty of room to move. There's a lot of extraneous entertainment and that's the name of the game, not just in Brooklyn, but in the industry. And we know this, but to apply it directly to my life, really for the first time, despite visiting 186 ballparks, um, you know, that was interesting. And I, and I think in subtle ways, it'll reflect my coverage going forward as I, uh, you know, go to a game as a, as a dad more and more and um, really have a firsthand experience of what's important to someone that's not me. And I think that's always helpful. I mean, I've tried to incorporate as many perspectives as, I, as I'm able with my writing through the years, um, but that firsthand experience can only help. <laughs> and uh, so thanks, Harry. <laughs> thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, broadening my horizons. Yeah. And, and not only that, but you talked about this too, about it being a short game, two hours and seven minutes. I mean, these concourses are going to be advantageous for regular folks too. Just like if you're in line for a hot dog, you're going to want to see the action at the same time. I mean, it feels like, you know, you thought maybe this was just taking your son to its first game, but it was very illustrative of what minor league baseball can be, is right now, but can be moving forward too. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, two hours and seven minutes is short, but, you know, I think before the pitch clock, there were a lot of just three and a half hour games for no particular reason, except it just took a long time. And thinking that if this had been that kind of game, even showing up late, we probably would have left early because I'm not sure if, you know, Harry had another 80 minutes of baseball left in him. So it was all good from that perspective. And people do want to stay at the end of the game. And especially if you've got fireworks or kids are on the bases afterwards. Um, you do want to wrap it up pretty quickly. There's always the thin line between when you're losing revenue because the game ends so quickly. Um, and that's always a delicate balance. But I think on the whole, yeah, you want these games to end within a reasonable amount of time um, so people can enjoy everything the ballpark has to offer, not just during the game, but afterwards. Yeah, I want to be clear that I'm not like advocating that all games should be two hours and seven minutes, but it was just noticeable that 
the game you happened to go to was that short. And that that is now a possibility uh, in minor league baseball. All right, Ben, pivoting from a game you went to in your personal life to one you went to in your professional life. We talked a little bit last week about your trip to the South and specifically your trip to Birmingham. We said we would talk more about that trip as the weeks went by. Well, another week has gone by. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your trip to Montgomery to see the biscuits. What stood out from that stop on your trip to Southern ballparks? Yeah, that was the second stop of my most recent trip following Birmingham, um, which we talked about last week. And I've been to Birmingham or Montgomery once before in 2015. So I was kind of overdue for a refresh. And just like last time in 2015, this time too, um, I just wish I had had more time in Montgomery overall. And it just didn't work out with the way the schedule was because Montgomery is a fascinating city. I mean, even just, you know, going from my hotel to the ballpark, which is a very short walk. I mean, you pass a statue of Hank Williams and, um, you know, he's an Alabama native, grew up, I think, about you know, a little bit south of Montgomery. There's a Hank Williams Museum uh, in Montgomery that I would love to visit. Just beyond the ballpark um, in right field is the Legacy Museum, you know, dedicated to the history of uh, you know slavery and then later mass incarceration and, you know, telling the really difficult story of um, you know the black experience in Montgomery and race relations. And, um, you know, that I think would be a great uh, place to visit as well, you know, to learn from that. I mean, where that museum was or is, you know, used to be a like slave trading site really nearby. I mean, so like the history there is just intense and there's so much to explore and unpack. And then you get to the ballpark itself and it's a former uh, train shed. And um, the history that architecturally is worked into the ballpark because the whole first base side of the ballpark is this former train shed. So it's a really unique ballpark architecture. And then in front of the ballpark is this is a plaque saying that this was a Confederate uh, prison where 700 Union soldiers were imprisoned, uh, mostly captured at the Battle of Shiloh. So you're just trying to process so much, you know, country music greats, um, race relations and the legacy of slavery, the Civil War. Uh, the the region's transportation history and how that tied into everything else and on and on and on. Um, it's just a really interesting place and uh, a lot to unpack, as they say. Um, but the ballpark itself is interesting. You know, it, you come up on that first base side exterior. That's where the main entrance is. You know, there's still like Western Alabama railway signage on the wall, and that's flanked by a pair of biscuits. You know, that kind of like weird juxtaposition of what the building used to be and what it is now, you know? Um, and then when you walk into the ballpark, first you walk into this uh, enclosed room uh, that, you know, used to be part of the train shed. And then from that out, out, out onto the concourse. Um, so I really love what they did in Montgomery with the architecture, because it's one of those ballparks when you're there, you, you know, it's Montgomery. And uh, while it's obviously no longer a train shed there, there's still trains that go by all the time. Uh, CF, CSX freight trains. And, you know, that's a part of the, you know, aesthetic of the building as well. Yeah. So that's what the aesthetic is around the place. What What is it like inside the ballpark? What is it like watching the biscuits go? Um, you know, when I was there, it was, it was interesting because I think it was that morning that I just double checked the game line and I was like, oh, it's 4.30. It's a 4.30 start because it was a double header. Um, so when I first got there, you know, a 4.30 start, you know, there weren't many people. It was two hours before the, a Friday evening regularly scheduled game time. So it was really sedate, gave me a lot of time just to wander around in a very open environment. Um, you have a lot of views of, you know, the city itself, you know, some good, you know, views of um, not just the trains, but surrounding buildings, the surrounding area. Um, of course, you know, they're the biscuits. So, you know, there's biscuit concession items. And, um, you know, the, there's one stand that just says biscuits, you know, parentheses, of course, um, because that's what you get when you're you're in a biscuits game. Um, so a pretty open layout, you know, once you're in the ballpark, um, decent amount of room to move throughout throughout the facility. Um, some really good sight lines, especially like on the upper level down the uh, third base side uh, really gives you a panoramic view of the surrounding area. And just taking in the history, you know, there's a lot of exposed brick. Uh, the front offices, you know, you you ascend this like grand wooden staircase that smells like old wood to get to the front offices. And there's like old uh, vaults and metal doors up there. So it, there's this real kind of out of time feeling to the place. And you see it in little ways uh, throughout the ballpark, um, to, which to me, you know, really adds to the experience. Yeah. And um, 
you know, we'll touch more on Pensacola and Biloxi, I think, in the weeks ahead. Um, but, you know, one thing that notably happened this week is that we have passed the marker for the first half of the minor league season. That means something again. Teams are clinching first half division titles, aiming for the postseason. Um, teams are punched their tickets to the playoffs in their respective leagues. We don't have to get into all of that right now. You can check out MILB.com and the standings page to see who's clinched, and we'll talk more about playoffs closer to the actual playoffs. But, Ben, now that we've reached this benchmark, as you kind of look back at maybe some of the themes that have happened in this first half of the season, what stands out? You know, I think the biggest theme, you know, we could do a – we won't do this. It would be pretty tedious, but kind of a supercut of us talking on this podcast, you, Tyler, and I, you know, in 2020, 21, 22, and being like, when's baseball going to start again? When is it going to be normal again? And I think last year in 2022 – I kind of convinced myself it was normal because the season started on time and, you know, we were a couple years out of the height of the pandemic. Um, but I think that was a little premature because I felt on the road this year um, that things are really feeling normal for the first time since 2019. Um, I think that's the biggest takeaway. And, and I've, I've sensed that too. in like front office people I talked to in terms of adjusting to post COVID and adjusting to the minor league uh, reorganization with the Major League Baseball takeover of the minor leagues. Um, I feel like this um, season is the first one that teams really feel like they have some footing beneath them. You know, there's still a lot to figure out for a lot of teams, especially as regards, you know, facility upgrades for a lot of them. Um, but I, I feel like there was a sense of normalcy and a, a sense of full steam ahead uh, that we haven't felt for a long time. And I felt that on the road. Um, just more dynamic and engaged at the games, more people to talk to, just more more energy throughout. So that to me is my biggest takeaway. Um, you know, in terms of the promotions, I'm not sure if there's, you know, the way there used to be in certain ways, you know, oh, this is the year that, you know, whatever, these guys from Sandlot are a big deal, or this is the year that Duck Dynasty has taken over the minor leagues. I don't feel like there's any... Um, real distinct new pop culture elements that have taken over outside of, you know, Marvel and the defenders of the diamond program. Um, one thing that has been great to see, although I haven't seen any on the road yet, um, but just the amount of, uh, you know, Negro league, the nine promotions um, I think has been one of the biggest takeaways um, in terms of seeing those as, you know, more fully developed as they've, as they've ever been. Um, you know, we've had some good stories on MILB.com about some of those recently. Um, you know, Salt Lake Occidentals caught my eye recently. Um, you know, that was an all-Black baseball team, you know, prior to the establishment of any official Negro League that played in like 1908 through 1913 and, you know, was the best team in the state and barnstormed all over. And one year played as a Black team in an otherwise, you know, all-white league and dominated. And those are the kind of stories that exist nationwide and I think are really interesting. And as much as people know about baseball, it just is one of those reminders. There's just still so much we don't know or don't know enough about, which is what makes, you know, the sport so rewarding. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that part about the Negro League tri tributes that we're seeing across uh, the minors th through the first half. Because I feel like those have been the biggest edu educational pieces for me, just learning about these teams that exist. Coast to coast. I mean, we we knew about a lot of them. We know that all black teams have been or were playing for a very long time in all these places. But to find out the exact names of them and the exact histories of all these clubs, I mean, you know, we we know baseball pretty well. So the fact that we didn't know some of this stuff is telling. And I'm sure people in the area didn't know it either. Now they feel a little bit more attached to the history of their own area. I would think. Yeah, definitely, and and pretty much any minor league community. Um, you know, has those stories to tell. And we've seen so many of them come out. And um, there's also so much room for expansion because it, it takes works to work to really get the story of a lot of these teams. And I know some teams have struggled in the beginning with really finding that information. So it's a work in progress in a lot of ways of continuing to get more information, continuing to tell the story. In some cases, the history is pretty well told. And in some cases, um, it's barely scratched the surface. So um, this is not certainly not any kind of one and done thing. There's just so much more room for teams to add on and for teams to do things for the first time or for teams who've done one specific thing to then tell another type of story um, in their community uh, through the um, through the lens of the past, because it's a really rich topic to explore. Yeah. And just to throw it back to the interview you had recently 
uh, with you know the director of the Negro League Southern Museum uh, or Negro Southern Leagues Museum, excuse me, in Birmingham. I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that. And also, you know, if you're in the area, visit that. Or if you're in the area of Kansas City, Missouri, go to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I haven't gone yet myself, but everybody I know who's gone has told me amazing things about the educational resources provided there. So it's not just at the ballpark. You know, if you get a taste of it, if you find out, hey, there's some stuff I don't know about. There are tons of resources out there. Even if it's been a little bit harder to find over the years, I think it's becoming easier and easier uh, by the year, which is a tremendous thing. All right. Well, thanks, Ben, for uh, sharing the stories of Harry Hill's first game and your trips to Montgomery. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll circle back here at the end. But, you know, thanks for, for sharing all that like every every week. Hey, thank you, Sam. Always great to chat, even though we are separated right now by I don't know how many miles, but it's quite a lot. But uh, <laughs> I'll see you next week and uh, over and out from the wellness room. Over and out from the wellness room and sending it now to where I currently am in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, I got a chance to talk to PDP League manager. Well, he's not the manager of the entire league, but Michael Kadire, former Twins great, uh, is going to be managing the team that is going to the U18 World Cup for USA Baseball. PDP League, the way it works, 100 High school juniors or members of the class of 2024 are invited here to carry. That group is going to be whittled down to 40 for a training camp later in the summer. And then that group is going to be whittled down to 20. They're going to go participate in the World Cup. Michael Kadire will be managing that team of 20, trying to bring a gold medal back to the United States. So right now, he's just in player evaluation mode. He's trying to see which of these 100 guys are standing out. Uh, so we chat a little bit about that and also, of course, his own minor league career. So here's me talking to Michael Kadire. When you have guys here, how much do you bring research from them for and how much is it of this decision-making process based on what you see here in PDP alone? Yeah, I think it's a mix. I mean, obviously, they're, they're here for a reason and they've been discovered for a reason. So research, scouting, videos, high school coaches, scouts, agents, it all gets thrown into the mix of getting them here. But then once you get here, you gotta go out and compete. You yep. gotta go out and show why you're here. And you know, it's nice to be able to see them and be able to compare everybody on the same canvas, so to speak, you know what I mean? Everybody's on the same field playing against each other. So they're not playing against their high school teams or the travel ball teams. We get to see them against one another on a relatively even playing field yeah what are the first things you evaluate guys on when they first get here uh being usa baseball we have a different set of standards and i think you know rightfully so we're held to a little bit of a difference especially when you go play internationally um when you when you go with usa across your chest everybody knows who you are and these kids need to realize that and they need to understand that so i think you're looking at character um the way that they carry themselves. You know, the first thing that we talk about is how they walk around a hotel room, how they walk around a stadium. Are they picking up after themselves? So character is, is probably the first. We all know that they can play. They wouldn't be here if they couldn't play. So the first thing I think we look for, at least that I look for, is, is character. And then people that are willing to, to maybe make sacrifices, whether it be a position that they want to play or playing time or where they hit in the batting lineup. None of these guys are used to hitting eighth. Yeah, right. and yeah, right. So looking at guys that are willing to do anything to be part of USA baseball and part of this team. Yeah, how early do those conversations start, especially with like moving around defensively, day which one. is something Bryce has done. Yeah, yeah, day one. No, day one it that's the conversation and the first day that they were here is is talking about again, everybody's the best shortstop on their team. Everybody's the best second baseman on their team. Everybody's the best center fielder on their team. But those are only three positions of nine that are on the field that we have to fill. You're also gonna need guys that are not used to playing the bench, guys that are playing roles, guys that are pinch hitters that never have done it before, guys that are starters that are gonna be relievers. So I, that conversation needs to start early and it needs to be con a continuous conversation. Mm -hmm. It's not just we say it once and then let it go. We continually talk about us and and playing for one and making sacrifices and doing what we need to do to go win a gold medal. Yeah, and kind of zooming out here, how has this transition been like for you 
to being you know national team manager where now you're overseeing so much of this yeah it, it's been great it's uh it's i mean obviously a little bit different uh, there's there's a lot of different uh moving parts that you're kind of in charge of now as opposed to when i was on it two years ago i was just the first base and hitting coach and that was kind of what i had to worry about now you've got a little bit of everything but that, that's fun and, and that's the thing that's great about usa baseball is all of the people that are in place are quality people mm-hmm. people that you can learn from people that have experience that you can pull from and and just makes everything again you not only do the players have to make sacrifices for their roles the the coaches and the the staff does as well Mm -hmm. yeah how would you kind of define what the michael kadair school of development is because i think everybody's a little different yeah comes to baseball development for me i just i you know my career was i played everywhere played several different positions at the major league level development learning the game having a high aptitude being able to process information quickly and apply it quickly those are the kinds of people we're looking for kinds of players we're looking for because after this team is done and made and at the end of august we have three days of practice and then we go play for a gold medal so we don't really have time to put everything that we want to put into a player we have to do it really quickly and efficiently so that's kind of what we look for. We devise ways to be able to get the most information to these players efficiently to allow them to apply it quickly. Yeah, and you were talking about how you used to play so many different positions. Mm-hmm. How has all of this changed since when you were around these kids? <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I played for the 18-year national team for two years, and it, all we had were trials, and it was out in Joplin, Missouri. <laughs> didn't have this complex that's beautiful, and we didn't have PDP League, so... It's, it's extremely different, but at the end of the day, it's still baseball. You right. still go out and you compete against your peers, the best peers in the country, to try and win for the country, mm-hmm. and that hasn't changed. Yeah. Normally, I'm a minor league reporter, so i got to ask about your minor league career yeah. a little bit, especially as you're talking to these kids, because so many of them are asking about what's Major League Baseball sure. like, but they got to go through the minors first. What do you remember about that time? Well, that's what's so ne- so unique about this PDP league is, especially three day, the first day of games, we had a two-and-a-half-hour practice session. And then you had your, your box lunch like you would in the minor leagues or a lunch, yeah, and yeah. then you would play, you'd take your batting practice and play your game. So I think it's a, good, it's a good overview of what it would be like if they were to sign a professional contract and go into the minor leagues. And then the other thing that's unique about PDP is it's nine straight days. Mm-hmm. It's not like the travel ball tournament where you're playing – you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're off Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, something like that. You get a taste of what it's like for baseball every single day. Right. And obviously, you know, that's the minor league. <laughs> that's the minor league. That's the minor league. <laughs> and one thing that interested me about your career, too, you repeated New Britain. Yeah. But you went from six homers to 30 homers. What happened in between that time? Figured out a lot about myself mechanically. Um, mm-hmm. John Russell was my manager my first year in AA. Number one, I was young. I was... 20 years old, 21 years old, my first year through. We weren't a very good team. Um, I did have mid-30, 36, 37 doubles, something like that. So physically I matured. Um, and then I went to Instruction League the year in between 2000 and 2001, and all we did was focus on my mechanics. I started getting a leg kick, started using my hips again. And Russ, John Russell, was my hitting instructor that instruction league, and all he did was spend all six weeks with me. Mm-hmm. We were able to make the adjustments, forcing the adjustments worked, went to AA the next year, and, and we had success. We won 90 games. Right. It was a good team. We had good players and had a good year. Yeah, and how much of those lessons you pass down to kids now, knowing that, hey, it's going to be a road. It's not just Failure's one coming. stop. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing that, that – these players will understand they haven't hit much failure in their lives and failure is relative maybe they feel failure is not going four for four maybe it's three for four i don't know (laughs) the o for fours will come the o for eights will come being able to and i think that's the great thing about usa baseball and playing for a gold medal is you learn at 18 years old or 15 years old or 12 years old to truly buy into the team and the earlier you can learn that, the easier it is to deal with failure because you're not putting so much pressure on yourself. You've now been able to deflect that pressure into the success of the team and not just worried about your stats and your career, which is a hard thing to do, not just in the professional baseball world, but even in, in younger baseball because 
the pressure of signing a scholarship or the pressure of being on this travel ball team or this organization is real and it's real for these kids and these families but the more you can learn about team and the more you can buy into the team concept, the less pressure you put on yourself. Yeah, how, how long do you feel like that process takes? Because it seems like this red team seems like they've been playing together forever. Yeah, and I, you know, I, excited they were. It takes, it, it takes the right group of guys being together. Maybe that, for some reason, when we made the teams, maybe we scheduled, <laughs> we, we got the right guys in, in one, in one group. Right. Um, but that's, that's the dynamic of teams. And, and, You'd like to think that there's an exact formula, but if there was, there would never be any bad teams. So, uh, you know, you're, you're constantly trying to get that formula right. Gotcha. All right, that's all I have for you. Thanks right. so much. Yeah, no problem. Our thanks again to Michael Kadire for joining the show, uh, telling us stories about the PDP League, the USA Baseball Selection Process, and again, his minor league career. Uh, if you heard last week's show, you heard Tyler and me talking about uh, the MLB Pipeline updated top 100 prospects list. We did that over the weekend. There was some debate about number one overall. We ended up going with Jackson Holiday over Ellie De La Cruz. Hopefully I didn't tip our hand there in our discussion last week. Um, I wrote about it for the MLB Pipeline newsletter, but just quickly to reiterate much of what I said last week, uh, the thought process behind going with Holiday 1, Ellie De La Cruz 2, was Ellie De La Cruz is going to strike out. He struck out at least 30% of the time, pretty much everywhere he's been in the minor leagues. And even after he got to a super hot start with Cincinnati, hitting for the cycle after we recorded, I think, last week, uh, he struck out a bunch more now and that strikeout rate, again, since the 30%. What happens as major league pitchers start to figure him out more? What happens when he goes into a bit of a slump, which is a little bit of what we're seeing right now, um, that could drag down the profile. That being said, all the other tools are pretty much elite, uh, specifically the power, the speed, the arm throwing ability. Uh, it's all there. But we went with Jackson Holiday because there's almost no doubt in our mind that Jackson Holiday is going to hit everywhere he goes. He's done that at single A to start out this year. He's done it at high A uh, so far. In a little bit of a blip, but was still walking and striking out basically in equal measure. Uh, at Aberdeen by the time we came out with that list. So it's been really impressive uh, for the 2022 number one overall pick to start his career this way. And that transitions to the next thing I want to talk about and a reason why I wanted to clear out a little bit more space here as you're talking about or talking to Ben at the start of the show, because we got a big announcement this week. One of the bigger announcements on the minor league calendar every year, we have the futures game rosters uh, that'll be taking place this year in Seattle on July 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, that game will be streamed on Peacock. Dave Sims will be on play-by-play. -play. Yonder Alonzo will be an analyst. Friend of the program, Jonathan Mayo, and my coworker at MLB Pipeline will be another analyst. Sierra Santos will be a reporter on the sidelines, as will Caroline Pineda. Uh, make sure you tune into that game on Saturday, July 8th. But we have the rosters now at, using our updated top 100 list. 28 members of that top 100 are making up the 50 futures game spots. So more than half will be top 100 prospects. They'll all be on one field together. It's as close as we get to a true minor league all-star game, especially now league all-star games aren't really happening right now. Aren't happening. I should say we are always holding out hope that they come back in the future, but this is bringing guys from all levels, from all organizations, all 30 orgs, We'll have at least one representative here. Some have as many as three, um, but the big names here, Jackson Holiday, who I already mentioned, he will be there, of course, for the American League side. I should also note that in years past, it used to be Team USA versus the world. Now it's AL versus ML. doesn't matter what your home country is. It's who your parent organization is. That's how they're splitting the team. So American League versus National League. Jackson Holiday, the big headliner as our number one overall prospect. Filling out behind him among our top 10 are Jackson Churio, the Brewers outfielder, who is our number three overall prospect. He will also be, or he will be on the NL, so he'll be the star, uh, star of the National League side. Red Sox shortstop Marcelo Meyer is coming in at number five. Nationals outfielder James Wood at number six. D back shortstop Jordan Lawler at number seven. And Cubs outfielder Pete Crow Armstrong at number 10. Now, if you look at these, rosters and they're available on mlb.com slash pipeline we actually just released the other day a full scouting breakdown 
on all 50 players broken down by organization. So if there are some names here that you don't recognize, check that out, find out what their skill sets are. It's a great way to be prepared for that game on July 8th. Uh, but as I look into the rosters, I kind of think the advantage here is with the National League. And I say that because the National League is so loaded with pitching. Now, this is a seven-inning game. It's a shortened version. They shortened it that way because I think they don't want guys getting hurt. You don't want pitchers throwing longer than they have to, et cetera, et cetera. It's an exhibition. I get it. I like it better when it's nine innings, but I don't have a say in that. That being said, seven innings, these aren't guys are not going to throw for very long, so they're going to let it air out. They're going to try to show, now that they're on national television, what they've been doing at AAA, at AA, before they've reached the majors in most of these cases. So it can be a real pitching showcase because you got pitchers going 100. That's really tough to hit in short stints, uh, especially if you're a batter who's only getting one or two at best because they're trying to get as many guys into the game as possible. So you look at that NL staff. There are five top 100 pitchers total going to the Futures game. Four of them are from the NL. Giants left-hander Kyle Harrison, who's number 14. Phillies right-hander Nick Abel, who's number 46. Cardinals right-hander Tink Hens, who's number 66, and Brewers righty Jacob Mizorowski, who's number 93, in addition to our top 100. All of those guys have really, really good stuff that can play in short stints. Kyle Harrison has reached AAA already. Watch his fastball. It's flat. And by that, I mean, you think it's going to drop. Everybody thinks a fastball sinks to a certain level. This almost looks like it's rising. It's not. It's flat as possible. So that's what affects the hitter's viewpoint, if they think the pitch is going to be lower, a lot of these guys are going to be swinging under his fastball. He would be my starter for the National League if it was up to me. Again, I don't have a say in this, but for the National League coaching staff, just going to throw that out there. Let Kyle Harrison uh, be your uh, be your starting pitcher. And actually, I should direct that directly at Raul Abanez, who is the manager for the National League side. His pitching coach, by the way, Felix Hernandez, pretty good, knows his way around Seattle, uh, was in the news this week because he had thrown the most recent perfect game for Domingo Herman, threw one for the Yankees this week. We still recognize Felix Hernandez's perfect game and remember it very fondly. Uh, so it'll be fun to see him on the bench coaching these National League pitchers. The AL only has one top 100 arm, that's Owen White, who's at number 48. Owen White has some major league experience already. The Rangers brought him up. Uh, very, very briefly, just to pitch out of the bullpen real quick, sent him back down to double A, then he moved up to triple A again. So he's knocking on the door. Um, you know, how, what can he do against this National League lineup? We'll have to wait and see because it's loaded beyond just guys like Churio and Wood and Lawler and Pico Armstrong, which again, that's a solid foundation. You got guys like Jackson Merrill, our number 12 overall prospect, uh, who is a really, really good hitter. It's taken him some time to get warmed up to the weather playing in the Midwest League at high A Fort Wayne in the Padre system, but I've heard some people think he can be a plus-plus hitter in the end, just his second full season. This is a good showcase for him. He's faced advanced competition before. Padres aggressively sent him to the Arizona Fall League last year. Don't think he's going to have a problem hitting under the bright lights of Seattle. Uh, Noelvi Marte, a Reds infielder who just got called up to AAA Louisville this week, so it's a big week for Noel Marte finding out he's going to be going over there. On the American League side, listen, they have some talented hitters. Like, as talented as the NL pitching staff is, again, you look at Meyer, uh, who's probably going to be their biggest name outside of Jackson Holiday, and how those guys work is going to be fascinating because they're both shortstops. Jackson Holiday started playing a little bit of second base. He even started at third base the other day for the first time in his pro career. Maybe they move him around to get both Bo Meyer and Holiday in the lineup. But fascinating to see how that split is going to be. But beyond those two, you got Junior Caminero, another Rays infielder, who's our breakout prospect of the year so far, uh, already climbed to double-A at just 19 years old, hitting for average, hitting for power. Hasn't really lost that much of a step at double-A. He slowed down a little bit, as you would expect a teenager to do, at the minor's second-highest level. But, man, that guy can really hit, and the Rays have another potential star on their hands, the way Junior Caminero has climbed up. The ranks. He didn't start in our top 100 at the beginning of the year. Uh, he was put on there after some graduations. Now he's at number 17. So this is the perfect spotlight for more people to hear and see Junior Caminero behind him. 
Mariners catcher Harry Ford at number 29. A's catcher or first baseman Tyler Soderstrom at number 37. Orioles outfielder Heston Kerstad at number 40. Rays first baseman, there's another Rays prospect, Kyle Manzardo at number 42. And Tigers infielder Colt Keith at number 43. Colt Keith getting promoted to AAA Toledo uh, this week. And of course, homering in his first at-bat. That guy has some sincere power. I think when Tigers fans get a closer look at Colt Keith, if they haven't already, they're going to get even more excited uh, where he fits on diamonds, still TBD uh, between third base and second base, but that hit and power tool combination is going to play no matter where. Uh, so excited to see him reach triple A. Uh, if I had to, again, predict who I think is going to win, I give the slight advantage to the National League, but this is a one-game showcase. Anything can happen. It would be lovely if we had a best of three, a best of five futures games. Uh, but obviously there's not enough time before the home run derby, the all-star game itself on the major league side uh, in Seattle. But make sure you're tuning in, not this Saturday, but next Saturday, July 8th, to watch some of the best talent minor league baseball will have. We'll have full coverage of that at MILB.com and MLB.com slash pipeline. I will likely be doing a story on the best moments of the game. If you remember last year's Futures game, that's where Mason Wynn hit 100 miles an hour with a throw across the diamond, which was the hardest throw from the infield ever recorded in StatCast history. Uh, and that was just in the Futures game. Uh, Mason Wynn not participating this year, but there are some of these some stellar tools on display. And again, we'll have StatCast data to look at some of this. So you never know. You know, James Wood might run into a ball at 110 plus miles an hour. Um, somebody might make a really, really strong throw. Pete Crow Armstrong, one of the best defenders, if not the best defender in the Meyer leagues, would be fascinating to see what kind of sprint speed he gets up to in center field at the Futures game. Or maybe he makes a catch that, you know, had a 5% catch probability. We'll find out more when the game happens. But those are your Futures game rosters. Uh, if I didn't mention a prospect from your favorite club, go to the – Futures game page, the rosters are all there, and they'll be updated. There's always a chance. Maybe somebody like Owen White gets called back up to Texas and they need a replacement, and replacements are always standing by for this. So it's always a little bit in flux, uh, but as it stands right now, very, very exciting roster uh, headed to Seattle, headlined by our number one overall prospect in Jackson Holiday. All right, we're going to throw it now to Josh Jackson with this week's edition of Ghosts of the Miners. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was filled with heroes for the local youth. The others never won the admiration of nobody. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one point exist. A. The Septet Hill Seven Tops. B. The Kingsport Johnson City Bristol Three Timers. C. The Leakesville Draper Spray Triplets. I suspect you got help from your siblings if you picked Z, the Leakesville Draper Spray Triplets. Say that three times fast. Believe it or not, the Leakesville Draper Spray Triplets represented Rockingham County, North Carolina's Tri-Cities in the Bi-State League from 1934 until the circuit shut down for the war in 42. But the Leakesville Draper Spray Triplets did everything in threes, returning to action a second time in the Carolina League in 45, and opening again in the Blue Ridge League of 1948. In 1936, coming off a winning campaign in 35, the team had a legend in the making as Skipper. That's right, in their third season, the triplets were managed by Clyde Sukaforth. The son of Down East Maine came down south to be a player manager for Leakesville Draper Spray in his first job with coaching duties, not knowing that in a decade's time he'd have scouted Jackie Robinson for the Brooklyn Dodgers and, incidentally, managed the Dodgers for Robinson's first two big league games, nor that he'd also scout Roberto Clemente. The triplets of the 30s and early 40s could have used the likes of Robinson and Clemente, but who couldn't? 
Leakesville Draper Spray made the Bi-State League playoffs once for each burg it called home. Under Sukaforth in 36, under Arnold Anderson in 39, and under Wes Farrell, already a two-time MLB All-Star and a future member of the Red Sox Hall of Fame and the Cleveland Guardians Hall of Fame in 41. Leakesville Draper Spray was once, twice, three times a loser in the Carolina League of 45, 46, 47, posting 237 L's in three years' time. But the biggest L was still on the way. The triplets were owned by Emmanuel Ed Weingarten, who also owned the Florence Steelers of the Tri-State League. In early June of 48, Weingarten was banished from the minors by President George M. Troutman for being the middleman between game-fixing Reedsville Luckies pitcher Barney DeForge and a gambler. The triplets franchise was forfeited, and the contracts of all Leakesville Draper Spray players were sold to a new franchise in Abingdon, Virginia. They could have gone ahead and called themselves the Leakesville Draper Spray Abingdon Quadruplets, but, nonsensical though it was, they simplified to the Abingdon Triplets. And, in the afterlife of the Triplets, even those Tri-Cities were sent to paradise. Leakesville, Draper, and Spray were merged into Eden, North Carolina in 1967. And that's how the Triplets got divided. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these teams had double the fun with a major league name in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Marlin Marlins B. The Mariner Mariners C. The Padre Padres Want to know the answer? Do a double take. Or, tune into the next, goes to the minors. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is baking bread for the Tour de France, and I've got to back it. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, as always, to Josh Jackson for this week's Ghost of the Miners. Uh, ben, as promised, we said we were going to wrap back around to you at the end of the show like we always do, so let's do that now. Uh, what is your promo you're going to be looking out for in the week ahead? You know, people who've listened to this podcast for a while or read my work over the years know I like a good, absurd, goofy, stupid in the best way minor league promotion. And um, I'm going to focus on what's happening uh, Saturday, July 1st, in Binghamton, New York, home of the Rumble Ponies. Uh, the Rumble Ponies are a double-A Mets affiliate, and they're celebrating a notable, um, I don't call it an occurrence, a notable annual occurrence in the Mets organization, which is, of course, Bobby Bonilla Day, when Bobby Bonilla, you know, who hasn't played for the team in many decades since the, what, what was that, early 90s, um, he still gets $1.2 million a year from the Mets, um, you know, for decades, I think for 36 years, uh, based on a deal he renegotiated with the club. And that's become a source of joy and consternation for Mets fans. Bobby Bonilla Day, knowing he's getting his annual big check. So the Rumble Ponies on uh, July 1st are celebrating their own version of uh, Bobby Bonilla Day in a very minor league baseball fashion. One fan will win $11.36 per year for the next 36 years, you know, the minor league baseball version of a Bobby Bonilla contract. So uh, hopefully we'll get a little coverage of that on MILB.com and um, interested to see who this lucky fan is who has a uh, annual windfall in his or her future for the next 36 years, collecting that $11.36. Hopefully by the time those 36 years are up, you can still buy a pack of gum with $11.36, given what inflation is. Uh, that's that's very funny. Although it's always funny to me that Bobby Bonilla Day is like such a big deal because deferred money in baseball is now a thing. Like that's just guys sign contracts where the money gets deferred for thirty years. Bobby Bonilla is not the only one, but for whatever reason, he's the one who's kind of latched onto the zeitgeist. I just always find that really funny. Yeah, um, he's the face of deferred money in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I mean, like you know, good for him that he still gets paid. I'm sure he would have liked it all in one lump sum, but. You know, working out that deal with the Mets, this is how it's gone. Uh, it saved the Mets money up front. Like, everybody makes fun of the Mets for still paying the guy money. But, like, they did that so they didn't have to pay him as much at the time. Whatever. That uh, that aside, aside, um, my MILB.TV pick of the week is going to be the free game, which will be available streaming for free. You don't need an account or anything on MLB.com. Uh, on Sunday, it's going to be Tulsa against Amarillo. 
there are a couple of top 25 prospects in that game. Diego Cartaya, uh, top Dodgers prospect, number 21 overall right now in the MLB pipeline list. Uh, will hopefully be starting for the Tulsa Drillers behind the plate. Jordan Lawler, our number six overall prospect, will be starting for Amarillo and the Sod Poodles. Lawler, talked about this before, will be participating in the Futures game in Seattle. So this is a great opportunity for D-backs fans to get a look at him before he heads to that showcase. But he won't be alone. He'll actually be joined in Seattle by his double play partner, Ryan Bliss. So Amarillo, their two middle infielders, are both going to the Futures game, which is really cool. Be interested to see if they pair them up there or if they're going to split them apart. We'll see because there's so many talented infielders on that National League team. Uh, Jordan Lawler having a great month of June. Um, so, you know, by the time that game starts, it'll actually be July. But as of right now, he's hitting 310 in June with the 936 OPS. So certainly coming around at the AA level. Ryan Bliss has been very productive all season long uh, in the Texas League, adding 349 with a 972 OPS entering Thursday uh, with 11 homers and 22 stolen bases. So he's getting it done on multiple sides of the ball. Uh, should be fun for Arizona fans. We're already having a good major league season. There's a lot of reason for optimism at the top level. The next generation isn't too far away. So check out that game on Sunday, uh, which we'll be streaming for free starting at 8.05 Eastern time. That is going to do it this week on the show before the show. I have been Sam Dykstra. You can follow me on Twitter at Sam Dykstra, M-I-L-B. Ben Hill can be found on Twitter, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Ben's Biz. On Instagram, want to get this right, Ben, at the Ben's Biz. That's right. Correct. And uh, you can follow Josh Jackson as well on Twitter. Uh, he can be found under Josh Jackson, M-I-L-B. Tyler Mon will be back with us next week. Uh, it'll be the full group again, and I'm sure we'll get all sorts of fun European tales from Tyler, maybe even a French accent. Tune in to find out. We'll catch you then.